One, two, three, four, five, sixers. Ten, nine, eight, seventy sixers. Here they come. Here they come. They're coming, Russ. Are you down? Don't be down on me tonight. This was a good one. This was an exciting one. And as as Investor Mike informs us, they're only plus 300, uh, at least on five dimes, where he bets. And he's contorted himself into uh, hedges upon hedges in this series. Um, they're only plus 300 to win the series. They were as low as plus 450 before game four, being down 3-0. For those of you who are not degenerates, that means a $100 bet pays out $300 or, or $450, which is a good bet in most circumstances, but not when a team is trailing 3-0 in a playoff series. Conversely, I believe the Raptors were over plus 1,000. Like that's Someone is wagering heavily on the Sixers to win if they're only plus 300, down 3-1, heading back to Boston. Crazier things have happened. Crazier things have happened. I just wanted to, to see how long you would go with that. Um, okay, so a few things. I, I'm glad they won tonight, and I'm gonna. I, not trying to be Mr. Negative, but they have a long road to haul, and, and I think that like it's going to be easy to, to get emotionally hyped up on this game and to think that this means that you know they're, they're right back in the series, but they're not yet. Like, and, and they need to get another win or two for this to become a real thing. I mean, it's it's nice to get a win on your home court. You're supposed to do that. And I, I think it would be very misguided of us and overly homerish, overly apologetic of us to just kind of gloss over game two and three as if they never happened. And so, yeah, like we're going to get into some of the things that have happened with Brett and with Ben. Um, the fact that I was, you know, at least a little bit omniscient going into game two and I guess even game three and to some minor extent game four about Ben around the rim. But you know, like, it's it, it's a good win. Um, I, I think continuously, and I said going into the series that guard, that guard and wing play was going to be the, the determining factor in a lot of ways. And through the first three games, it was. Boston's wing play was just so much better. It was exponentially better. You only chose two. two out of the three facets of the game. Well, I, I said job. wing. I mean wings. You, wings I'll give include, you this. Include you called wing. You called wing. And, and well, like, don't that to me... Guard. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Well, it depends. I, I mean, positionless basketball, but whatever. Uh, yeah. okay. Not front court, guys. Um, the the big issue right now is, and I think I think anybody who enjoys watching this team and anybody who loves this team, likes this team, whatever, if you're being honest with yourself and you're watching this series, you just realize that Boston is so much more athletic and quick to loose balls, at least through the first three games they were. Like, how many times this... Uh, this long run the 16 game win streak and then even against Miami did we see our team get every floorboard available and for some reason it felt like in games two and three especially it just seemed like the ball was like one or two steps away from Covington or one or two steps away from Ben and it was as if they they were stuck in molasses or they were stuck in quicksand and tonight it kind of felt like they were back to that team that we're used to seeing it's and like this is the intensity thing I was talking about and wrote about it takes a week off. When uh, look, I'm not look, and, and we'll we'll get into a a debrief on the on games two and three, which we haven't touched on on here. 
uh, before. I don't think we touched on game two. I can't even remember. When no, we didn't. Recorded. I think I think um, we should actually start there and then kind of go right, well, back ho- up to where to where we're at with with game four. Fair enough. Fair. But but we could you know and there's a lot to unpack from that. But I do. It's a real thing uh, in basketball in any sport to sit for a week and play a team who's not necessarily playing for their lives, but just played a tight seven-game series. They're in the routine of playing every other night. They have the flaw. And the Sixers, it's kind of like, not only did they have to sit for six days, but they played a Miami team that really took them out of their rhythm. And I know we've disagreed about this before, but I actually thought, you know, Brett Brown's been pretty thoroughly outcoached in the whole playoffs from game since game one until tonight. And that started at game two in Miami and lasted through game three of the Heat. And yes, they beat the Heat. Yes, it was a five-game series win, but they really allow the Heat to dictate the the style, tempo, pace, and and everything about the series. The Sixers just happen to be better. Um, it's tough to come in and then just you know kind of pick up against a Boston team that's in full stride, already running. Like Jason Tatum is literally and figuratively just completely always in full stride. It's kind of incredible, and the whole Celtics team has been that way. Um, I don't. I think tonight the Sixers found a little bit of that mojo. A big part of it was T.J. McConnell with a career high. I didn't realize 19 points was his career high. That yeah, it didn't seem right. I, I'm shocked that he hasn't put up 19 points at some point over the last couple seasons. Yeah, I, I am as yeah. well. I mean, he's, I, he's I just he's gotten so not many that minutes. I expected like 10, 20 point games. I just no, in my head, like, I'm like it, he had to have yeah, a 20 19 point doesn't game seem somewhere. like that much, and he's got yeah. like a decent enough mid range game. He's got a good enough ability to get to the rim. Yeah, it was a little bit surprising. I thought it was wrong. Yeah. I thought TNT was once again wrong in their broadcast. I just have to get this off my chest really quick. I hate Kevin McHale. I hate I listening to him. And I and I, I tweeted, listening to Kevin McHale is kind of like if you took Hubie Brown, took 85 percent of his intelligence out, threw it away, and replaced it with Bill Walton is what I feel like I'm listening to. Like Hubie Brown sucks in and of his own right. No, but I, I think Hubie Brown is at least somewhat knowledgeable about the game. Like there are times where I'll listen to a broadcast with Hubie Brown and like, does he say the same thing again, again and again and again and again? Yes, he's old. He's probably senile, but he still knows more about basketball than most of us, or he's forgotten more about basketball than most of us have ever known about it. So like I give Hubie a little bit of credit. Kevin McHale, like the, this whole idea that we have to sit through listening to a Boston homer you know, call these games. It drives me nuts. I don't like it. It, it sucks. And like, I don't get Marv too Albert, wrapped up. Where's, where's Marv Albert? Where's Kevin Harlan? Like, where are all these A-list guys? The real series. That they, you know, but like, I get that, but you can afford to have these guys. Why does TNT not have a better crew? I mean, even well, they, ESPN. They do. Have, like, They're have, just not here. ESPN have what? Their C crew? on uh game three but we got doris burke on play-by-play doris is i like really, dave pash and doris, doris burke i'll doris take them any day over like, this crew yeah exactly but that's what i'm saying like look at their third crew that's like not a bad a bad crew to listen to it's a good well, announcement it's a they knowledgeable call, color like, commentator they you know call like 20 sporting events a night so they have a little bit of a deeper rotation than turner the turner sports network has um yeah i, I agree with you i usually like brian anderson uh, I don't think he's been good this series. He's seen underprepared in the first round. Uh, he didn't know some basic things about the Sixers. Uh, he thought, not that this is really shows up in his research, but he thought Meek Mill was attending his first ever Sixers game. Um, like little things like that. He just felt like a little disconnected. I liked him. I thought he did a good job calling Roy Halladay's playoff no-hitter, uh, at least the final out, uh, which I've watched on tape a thousand times because I was there. Um but Kevin McHale has brought him down big time. 
Kale doesn't really he, he clearly doesn't study much on either team, just performs baseline commentary. And I'm not someone who gets wrapped up in this whole uh, he's a homer, he's a homer thing. But when Rozier shoved and beat and he didn't think it should be a technical, I was like, What are you watching? Like and they of course they won't end up getting matching technicals, which, you know, should be the, the Sixers uh, home companion video for this playoff uh, run. Um uh, anyway, yeah, they they've been rough. So look, t- tonight I th- the team was different. There was there's more energy first and foremost, but TJ McConnell brought a whole nother dimension. He's brought a whole nother dimension when he's been on the floor this series. Brought a whole nother dimension tonight. And it's not sustainable. Like I'm one of those guys Drink. who firmly <laughs> shut up. Every, that's that's the new I actually yeah, am drinking. Any time of us either uh either of us say it's not sustainable, I think that like has to replace uh, like Bleacher Report or something at this point. Honestly, you know what, though? It's we such say a it's good... not sustainable so often, but it's it's accurate. It's a good phrase for sports because we react so much to things that happen in one game in sports, just the nature of sports commentary and writing and all that stuff, that sometimes you just have to remind yourself that things that, you know, we as fans just assume T.J. McConnell's going to come out and be the savior in game five. Well, you know, who knows? So, you know, he's not going to put up a career high every night. But... He clearly the Celtics, and this is another thing I mentioned about Celtics playing every other night, and I wrote this the other day. Once this series, if it hits games six and seven, that's when the Sixers are going to get the benefit here, because now you're playing every other night, and the Celtics have essentially, with the with the exception of the, that two day gap between games one and two, they've been playing every other day now. If you hit game six, it will be ten of eleven games. If you hit game seven, I believe it'll be eleven of twelve games. You, the first time I've seen that manifest itself in this series was watching TJ McConnell do his Steve Nash thing, dribbling around that in the second half. Uh, I know he's quick. I know he presents some matchup problems for them, which is all the more reason he should have seen more playing time earlier. But we could talk about that in a minute. But I, the Celtics looked awfully slow, awfully slow when he was out there dribbling around. And it felt like just a little bit that their legs were going. And well, now the they got to turn around can, again and play in 48 hours. He's the only guy who can guard Rozier. I mean, like, that. That I, I, as we come back to, like, game two and game three, like, these are the adjustments that I think Brad Stevens, on the flip side, has been able to make in-game. And it feels like, like Brett has been super slow to make most of these adjustments. I mean, it's awesome that he finally decided, you know, to drop Covington, who's played, like, utter garbage uh, in this series. I mean, he, he shot what eight for 15 in game two, but he was over eight and, uh, I think over five in the other two games in the series going into game four and like, yeah, okay, great. You know, you decided to finally do something to match up against Terry Rozier. I mean, I don't know how many times we had to watch Robert Covington go head to head with Terry Rozier in the first couple of games and get blown by every time. You know, this is why I said the last time, a lot of people who haven't been focused on the Sixers all that much over the last few years that have been kind of casual fans that haven't really known what exactly to expect or what they're watching because, you know, this team has had such overhaul over the past few years. They hear that Covington's this elite defender and they think that that means he can shut everybody down. Well, it's not it. It's it's his defensive versatility and ability to guard one through four. But Rozier presents this matchup that he just cannot keep up with. I mean, like, Rozier has had his way in practically every every uh, chance he's had. And it's even been something that's been talked about on national podcasts. Like, Zach Lowe covered this, that, you know, in Game 3, Covington's body language was so bad. And why? Like, well, part of it's because he was he was an ofer, uh two out of the three games. 
And part of it is also because guys that he's used to being able to go up against are, you know, maybe of the same height, a similar stature, but don't nearly have the quickness. And he can usually rely on his ability to deflect passes, to jump passing lanes, to get to get his hands in. And this Boston team between Tatum, Rozier, Jalen Brown, whoever you want to say, they are quicker. They are, and uh, with the exception of Rozier, they are longer than Covington. And he just hasn't been effective. And if if your whole if your hallmark as a player is to be this defensive expert, and you're getting shredded on that end, it's going to kill in your confidence. And then what that starts to to do, obviously, is it it leaks into the offensive end, which you know, typically a guy gets a layup and you start thinking of of him as a shooter you know you you start to you get the easy buckets you start to extend your range like kind of what we saw with Dario in game four um I think Covington takes a lot off of the defensive side and and kind of converts that into his easy offense and and getting threes and you know kind of finding his swagger he hasn't been able to do it at any point in the series maybe in game two a little bit but game one three and, and certainly tonight he just looked out of sorts and you mentioned getting those easy layups to get you going and stuff um he doesn't have that. I know the analogy you were trying to make, but he doesn't have that. And, you know, transitioning to what their offense has looked like the first three games of the series, um, it's very static. And I, you know, I could not take any more of watching guys roll off picks with their body, specifically Covington and Bellinelli and Reddick roll off picks with their body language. I know I sound like you in November here, and I'm, I'm not trying to talk about J.J. Reddick shooting off-balance threes or Bellinelli shooting off-balance threes, but their body, their body momentum taking them away from the basket on these little, you know, those little horns, those little horns picks, the Sixers runs, Ben Simmons gains the paint, the Celtics sag, and then he kicks it out off the little pick or to a stationary Saric or Saric or Covington. Like if the the offense has been so maddeningly stagnant, and unlike in the regular season where teams typically, sorry, got a hair in my mouth, uh, typically don't clamp down that much on defense, and the Sixers have been able to push the ball and get things more wide open and kick out on the run, and Ben Simmons is able to gain the paint and kick it out in the other direction. The Celtics are defending all that brilliantly, and their offense for two games, for three games had essentially become just sit back, let Simmons enter this no man's land at the top of the key where he's or around the free throw line where he's not going to shoot the ball. And yet today he's trying fadeaways. Um, and then kick it out. he's shooting, right? Like that's, yeah, right. I guess. That's, but, I mean, that's he's positive. not taking the easy ones. He's taking the hard ones, which is crazy. It's better um, for him to shoot. Keeps the defense honest. But, like, you're just – you're not going to get – you can't rely on an offense where guys constantly have their momentum taking them away from the basket or are completely stationary and relatively guarded and forced to fade back ever so slightly. Like, watch some of the threes Ilyasova well, and Sharch took early in the game, and they just have a slight fade because there's a hand up, and they got well, no see, momentum. But Kyle, that's, not- that's one of those things that, like, I think earlier in the season that we had talked about, and even during that streak, you know, one of the things that I kept kind of coming back to is – you know, they're okay, and, like, we can deal with what Bellinelli does and the fact that practically every jump shot that Ilyasova has ever taken has had a slight fadeaway to it. You can deal with that when they're hitting at a decent clip. Like, if they're hitting around, like, 40 to 45% from deep, you'll you'll deal with that. If they're hitting shots in big moments, you'll deal with it. And what we suffered through the first three games was they're not hitting those shots or they weren't hitting those shots. And so it becomes, you know, increasingly infuriating. And even in this game today, the problem is, though, that it's they were the only shots they were. They seemed like the only their whole offense was those yeah, shots and, for two. And games. that's and that's fair. But and like when they for, did get to the basket, time, no one could fucking finish. 
Yeah, and for a long time, they were hitting those shots, and it was fine. But what I'm saying is, like, even in today's game, right, they get a lead, and there are moments where Bellinelli's taking these, like, I know that a lot of his shots are off balance, and I know that we had talked about Redick all through the season, how it drove me nuts, but, like, he was hitting, so it was fine, but it still drove me nuts. You watch this game, like, there were a few shots that Bellinelli got his feet set, and typically, and I, I don't have the exact stat, like, on uh, his body momentum, but I would say that on pull-up jump shots or shots that he was able to step into, very similar to Redick, I think he hits at a higher percentage. But it still felt like there were moments where Bellinelli would would come off the baseline onto the left flank, and he would take this like corner jump shot that he could just as easily come off the screen, uh, come off of a rotation, and just take a straight up jump shot. And instead, he he feels this need to just constantly fade. And you know they they weren't falling, so then it looks like a bad shot selection. And you know it it's still going to be something that I think is going to be infuriating. But like. Look, if they can go into Boston and they can they can kind of hit at the clip they were hitting at, you know, even during the Miami series and during the win streak, well, then you're going to be coming back for a game six. But if if not, if the kind of, you know, length and athleticism and, and the speed that Boston plays with defensively kind of comes back around in game five, like you're screwed. I mean, there's there's no way around it. Like this team doesn't have a guy who can create his own shot. Well, it doesn't hold on. Exist. Oh, I, well, hold on. Hold on. Because it might. You're right. It doesn't. And that, that point about Bellinelli you just made where he takes the fade away rather than just coming off uh, the curl or the screen, you know, that's part of the problem. The, yes, they've relied on those shots all year. I mean, they've run that horn. Kevin's written about a bunch of times. They've run the horn set where you got, you know, two different guys coming off the screen around the top of the elbows. And, and you know, it, it's worked for them. The Celtics, the Celtics are descending, defending it exceedingly well. And there's been no adjustment. And really, tonight, the only adjustment was, okay, well, TJ McConnell's just faster than everybody, and he could do that that Steve Nash thing where you dribble around and dribble through people. And it just so happened the Celtics looked like they were out of gas, and he was actually able to get to the basket on those things. Usually, he doesn't even, you know, he doesn't even have to go in for the layup. You saw that one play where he had the wide-open layup, and he kicked it out, out foolishly, I might add, I think, to Covington. Um, Who was, was that, TJ? Yeah. In the fourth yeah. quarter, there he was wide yeah, there open. Was, but there was, I mean, there was that one, and there was the moronic play that Ben made, where he had a, uh, it was just he and in Baines to go up to the rim, and he uh, did like a behind the back bounce pass. I think it was supposed to be Sharp streaking behind him. That like those were two examples of of times where like you could have either taken the easy two or gotten to the line, and in both cases, like it obviously doesn't come back to hurt you in that situation. And they were both kickouts. I do think that the the one that I'm referring to led to a three by Reddick, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but I, you know, with TJ specifically, he's, you know, usually he just kind of dribbles around and then is able to get those kickouts. And in, in, as it turned out today, he was able to just go straight through to the basket, which was great. Um, you know, how much of that was coaching and how much was that was just the decision to put TJ in and him opening things up. The point is, he opened things up and he changed the whole dynamic of the offense. And it's not to give, give him too much credit, but you saw it even in the fourth quarter when he came out for a few minutes and it was back to Simmons and two possessions in a row. They had momentum going away from the basket and guys taking contested shots. It's just not just not a reliable way to, to run an offense. And with Simmons specifically, and I know I've been like his biggest defender on here, and I feel like now every podcast I'm coming back and giving you credit for something. I'm, I'm quasi-fed up with, with him in this series. And it's it's what part not of him are you fed up with Kyle look it's not that he can't shoot 
It's not that he can't. We know that. So we knew it, and I've ex- I've accepted it, at least, for this season. So I'm not going to sit here and say, I hate that he can't. He's not a reliable jump shooter. But they're fucking daring you to take a shot from inside the free throw line. Shoot it. Like, I mean, these are... Wait yeah, a second. Whole- Wait, are you saying that it's not necessarily frustrating that he doesn't have a consistent jump shot? You're frustrated by the fact that he's unwilling to try to shoot? Oh my god, I feel like we've finally come full circle. This is all I talked about for the first two months of the season. I mean, seriously, I'm not even trying to like to get credit here. I'm not trying to say like I was right and rub everybody's face in it. But damn, man, like this is the thing that I said early in the season. Like when I'm seeing his potential and I know that he can go to this next level, that he can play well beyond what a rookie can, my whole issue the entire season that I was slaughtered on, I was crucified on this podcast on Twitter for saying he's got to shoot. I don't care if he hits a high percentage. You've got to keep the defense honest. And when things were going well early in the season, it was like, whatever. I'm glad you finally come around. You, and look, you're partly right. And, I, and I'm not, you know, n- neither of us are saying things that are earth shattering here. Everybody knows Simmons he needs to get a shot and would like for him to shoot more. Thing is, during the regular season, he was pretty successful not doing it. And he was still approaching triple doubles most every night. And you're able to easy, more easily mask it because teams still weren't ready for him. They weren't defending him as well as the Celtics were. Now your season's on the line and you're down 2-0. And 3-0, and it's like, dude, you got to just try and shoot it if for no other reason than to keep them honest. And the Sixers pride themselves on pace and space, and they have the whole four-point line in practice, so the guys, you know, intentionally stand five feet behind the three-point line, and they create more space on the floor. The problem with Simmons is he's, like, vacuuming up all that space by virtue of not being able or willing to shoot from anywhere because it allows the Celtics to sag off completely clog up the paint and not only is the paint clogged now the area between the paint and wherever ben simmons decides to be dribbling the ball is also wasted space because it's a no man's land because he's not going to do anything there so now you've completely taken away what your advantage is which is spacing the floor and pacing it all right you know they're trying to put the pace and the celtics are athletic and can match them so fine but as far as the spacing goes the paint is gone the area above that is gone, and now that makes it that much easier to defend those 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 you know high elbow forty five degree angle threes the Sixers are willing to take. And rather than Brett Brown drawing up something where Simmons gains the paint, kicks it out to the traditional curling man coming off the the screen, and then creates a secondary screen with a guy running around the baseline and popping out to the corner for an open three, which would have the effect of opening up the paint a little bit to get some confusion and movement going there, but also hopefully get you some better looks. They've just continued continuously gone back to the well up until TJ McConnell tonight where things open up a little bit. And that's changed the whole dynamic. And all of that being said, they still held a lead with a few minutes to go in game two. They still were in a position, should have, could have, would have. Let's talk about coaching in a second here. Won game three, and now they've won game four. And I think that's why you see the line, and whether it's plus 300 or plus 400, whatever it is for the series, being so insanely a quote-unquote Sixers line. If there is a team that can overcome 3-0, this is one of those scenarios where it's, it's plausible, at least. I know it's never happened in the NBA. 
But this is one of those scenarios where you have a team, they're favored again. They're one and a half point favorites in Boston. They've been favored every game this series. They're they're like the anti-Eagles up until tonight. It's the opposite. They're the overdogs. Thanks. I was working on that for a while. Wow, you gonna make but, a shirt for that and uh, donate the proceeds to uh, the local <laughs> school districts? Or, Philly uh, Catholic schools? Uh, okay. No, so why no, but Catholic? it's like why are you such an elitist on religion? What's wrong with no, you? No, it was a joke because there's the overdog. So instead of the no, public I schools, you go to yeah, Catholic. Yeah, gotcha. Fuck yeah, off! Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to put How's everything your in the upside down. How's your side, Kyle? No, go ahead. Well, continue. I will talk. about I have that a point, really quick. Uh, before you, before you continue. Yeah, it, real, so, honestly, that let uh, me put a bow on it. That was really my only. My only point was. They're all of all of those things we checked off, they were so right there, and now just a mild adjustment has them winning by ten. It's not completely insane for them to win this series. Uh, I, I said it after game one, they would lose game two and, and would win four in a row. Um I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's actually it's batshit crazy. I really don't. Um it's unlikely, but it's not of totally. Of course it's unlikely, of. but I don't yeah. I mean, look, I I always like to kind of go back to the the 2010 Flyers and the 2010 Flyers were down 0-3 in a series, and who did they come back to beat? Hockey's the Boston a Bruins. Yeah, but no, hockey's no, no. A but they came back to beat the Boston Bruins. So I'm liking it. I'm liking the uh, the 2018 year of the underdog or the overdog or whatever dog. I don't care. Um, really quick. So I know that I had brought this up before, and I brought it up after Game One, and you kind of said I was nuts about it, and and it was my concern with with uh, Ben's finishing at the rim. So this is just in the postseason. He's attempted 51 layups. Guess his percentage of conversion. Uh, you're going to tell me. I'm just, like, guess, quick. Uh, how many layups? 51. Don't Google it, you I'm slime. Not. I'm not. 58%. I can hear you typing. No, I'm, I'm looking up something 51. Else. 51%. Is so it really? It's, yeah, it is. Is um, it really? In the regular... I, didn't, yeah, I swear to God, I didn't look that up. You said 58. Oh. It was 51. <laughs> For the regular out. season, he he uh, he made about sixty percent of his layups. If you're wondering where that ranks against like elite point guards, Chris Paul converts at like a seventy three percent rate. Now I know they're totally different players, but like if you're talking about uh, point guards getting to the rim and such, like that's where an elite uh, an elite level point guard who's been in the league for a long time that's something that they refine their game on. Um, I you know just throughout the season, I I thought that that Ben's finishing at the rim was a little bit suspect. Um, l- never mind the fact that we can talk about the fact that in game three, he goes up with 20 seconds left on the clock, skies up for an offensive rebound, and then makes the, uh, I don't even know what kind of way I can put this in a nice way, but like the most boneheaded play of the series, likely, in not taking the ball back out. And I know that he's not a reliable foul shooter, but make make Boston foul or try to get the ball to one of your many shooters on the court to uh, you know make Boston foul there. He, as much as I like Ben, and I like Ben a lot, and I know I've been critical of him all season, Ben has cost you multiple games in this series. And the only way for them to overcome it is to have TJ McConnell on the floor more, which I don't really know. Like, I, I know that for right now it feels good, and it's and it it's great because it's worked and the matchup's great. But if that doesn't make the, uh, the future prospect picture of this team a little bit alarming to you as a fan, like, I, I think you're looking at this all wrong. And... It's been something that that I've said in Slack a bunch, and I keep getting pushback. 
And it's like, yeah, look, I want to I want to live in the moment with this series, but then I also have to be responsible enough to look forward to like the next five to seven years of this being your real legitimate rival in the Eastern Conference. And the one thing that it seems like people keep forgetting is not only is this Boston team good and young and athletic and fast, they have a lot of guys on very cheap deals. They are up against the cap because of deals to Hayward and Horford and, and Kyrie, but they also have, uh, you know, at least one lottery pick plus the one that you gifted them as part of the uh, trade-up for Markel Fultz. This team is going to be, you know, a massive thorn in your side for years to come. And right now, if we're being honest and we're looking at this team position by position, player by player, Boston is a deeper team. Even if they lose a guy like Terry Rozier, who's their third guard uh, going into this season, if they lose him, they're going to be able to replace him. I mean, like, don't don't even get me started on if this Lakers pick conveys this year or God forbid it doesn't. And it conveys uh, to Sacramento, like the Sacramento pick where they end up getting like a top three pick. And that ends up being another elite guard or lengthy wing to add to this rotation. Like, that's all scary. Or if they were able to actually get, you know, a legitimate post player to pair with Horford in like a DeAndre Ayton or something in the draft, like. These are the things that I start to kind of fret about. Like, yes, I want them to win the series and I care about the moment. But when TJ McConnell is the guy that you're kind of hanging your hopes on, that kind of speaks to your lack of depth overall. And it is concerning. It should be concerning to anybody who watches this team. Yeah, no, that's well said. But I two things, you know, I'm less concerned about the depth because Bellinelli and Ilyasova were the two guys in the middle of the season where you're like, oh shit, we're contenders. Let's go see what we can find off the scrap heap. That you know, this again, the reason I've been so de- defensive of the Sixers is because they never really truly meant to contend this year. They sort of accelerated out ahead of the process, so to speak, and went out and got two guys who can instantly make them better, and indeed they did. And, you know, put them in a position that maybe potentially contend for making the finals. I mean, th- that's what this was. So I can't sit here and say, well, they're not deep enough, this and that. It's, I think I wrote you, the other day. I don't. You can. No, like, but it's, hold it's on. Not I, an in, like, it's not necessarily like an indictment on anybody. Well, or yeah, anything. you could say, hey, they're not but, deep enough to make it. But I, I, I think there are some people, you know, the Sports Talk Radio crowd, oh, you know, fire Colangelo, you know, it's his fault, fire Brand. First of all, you know, I, I think I wrote this. I don't think I talk about it on here. The teams that you could really judge like that in our in our memory, I would say, are the '90s Flyers, who were you know contenders. Sports Illustrated picked them to win almost every year. Russ, Sports Illustrated is a publication that used to get mailed to houses in the '90s. It was about. Oh, sports. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking. Oh, was that the one that just lost uh, lost Peter King to uh, NBC? Not the Athletic. That was good. It yeah. is. Um, it's kind of falling apart. That's fine. Yeah, I, yeah. I know who they are. Okay, but, uh, you know, the Flyers were picked multiple times to win the Cup, and when they would come up short, you could sit there and you could hammer them for not having this piece, not having good enough power play, not being fast enough, whatever. The Eagles, from 03 to 05, when they came up short in the playoffs and or the Super Bowl, you can hammer them for not having good enough receivers, choking in the big moment, Andy Reid blowing call. You know, they were built to contend those years. The Phillies from 2010 and 2011 specifically, I would say, when they were the best team in baseball, you can criticize them when they didn't win and came up short in the playoffs for missing this or that or not having you know good enough OBP guys. This Sixers team is different because they're really, they really were never meant to contend this year. So all your criticism, I think, has to be couched in like, yeah, okay, this isn't actually the final product they're truly going to war with. 
That's going to come starting next year when they potentially sign or acquire a very big name player in the offseason. Then they are truly contenders. And then everything that they fall short of, they deserve to be criticized for because they've that is the team they're going to battle with. The team we're seeing now is like, you know, it's like the prelude to that. Like, you know, JJ Redick was kind of here as a as almost a bridge to the next free agent. Uh, you know, now look, I would love for him to stick around. He's been terrific. But he was never really meant to be like the big free agent guy. Ilyasova and Bellinelli weren't really meant to be like the true depth guys. They're just sort of all happenstance and you know and and therefore you kind of lack this athleticism because you got a lot of relatively unathletic white guys as is key you know key scorers on this team uh and you have your two most athletic players in Simmons one of them can't shoot and Embiid really isn't that quick so it's kind of a weird mishmash and all of that they they still put them they were still kind of favorites to win the east going into the playoffs according to some simulations and right there with the Cavs or Raptors and you know on the betting lines so you got to give them credit where it's due. But I do think you can sit here and criticize some things they've done in the series that have absolutely cost them a couple of those very close games. To your point, Ben Simmons not a, he finishes a couple more times to get around the rim. They're up two or three to one right now. Doesn't if he takes a dunk, pulls the offensive rebound out, yeah. Absolutely. Makes a single absolutely. shot in game two. and. Yeah. And further, and I would tie this to some coaching issues because I, I think Brett Brown is, like you, been very slow to adjust. I, I Like you, I agree. Not that you're slow to adjust. Um, I am. It's okay. He's been slow to adjust. Uh, and I, the fundamentals, I get that Ben Simmons is a great passer and he could pass one-handed and he could throw a football pass cross-court high up in the air. He could throw it the length of the court. I get that you want to do that. I get that you want to play fast. I get that you're willing to accept turnovers. Kevin wrote about this, but I think back in November, December. But when you're making the the just normal, routine, fundamental bounce pass, like J, now J.J. Reddick's a veteran. There's no excuse for it. But when Simmons in, inbounds that ball and it gets stripped in overtime the other night with one hand to Embiid, uh, you can't make that. You can't make those lackadaisical passes in, in the NBA playoffs in crunch time. Two well, coaching that was also issues. Following, that was also following. I think it was in the fourth quarter. It was back-to-back possessions on on a, on side inbounds passes that they were unable to complete a pass. Yes, and and, and that even, and, 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 even, and that is coaching. You know, and that part of that is coaching. Well, like, yes, it's on Simmons to not make that pass, but good coaching instructs you. Look, when you're, I get that you're going to make the pretty pass with one hand, or that your way of getting the ball across or down court is a one-handed lob. Although we did see Simmons do it in the fourth quarter tonight, and Brown looked at him like he was going to kill him because the Sixers were up, and he threw the ball away three-quarters of the court for no particular reason. Um, but when you're making the routine pass, make the routine pass and make it well. Put, you know their, their passes are not on the mark. Look, I know I reference Villanova a lot on this podcast, but it's the most basketball I watch, so just bear with me. Go wa- watch how every single one of their passes, bounce or chest, is crisp. I mean, they're all in the shooting pockets. And then go watch the Sixers and watch how lackadaisical they are with some of their passes. It's And Ben Simmons is the number one offender. Fultz has done it in his limited time that we've seen him. Who? But Simmons is absolutely the number one off- offender. And that pass to Embiid is inexcusable that he made the other night. And worse, but from a coaching standpoint, even... Embiid has to know that you have to go get that pass. You can't just reach for it. 
that, and the, that's hold like on. the secondary. The Sixers, that's the secondary issue. With one last play. thing: the Sixers do. The, I, I agree. The Sixers do this all the time, and they they did it tonight, and they got lucky. They throw these bounce passes into a defender who's who's got his uh, into a. I'm sorry, into a receiver who's got his back to the defender. But they never go get the ball. They wait for it to come to them, and they reach for it. And it both exposes the ball. Not only are the passes bad, but exposes the ball even when it, once it hits the hands because it's really not firmly in the grasp. Not to mention it takes them out of a shooting position, and rather than coming out and getting it and facing up, they're reaching and then trying to pull it back in and back down. Like These are fundamental things that I don't – like. I don't know if they're instructed that way because one of them did lead to like a, a weird Sarge kind of spin move in the paint. So it kind of made sense tonight, but like they've done this all season and it's like, are you not, I don't, I, I just feel like they're, they're not coached well on some, some of the fundamentals. And when you have a young team well, in the NBA, like right. I get in the NBA, you shouldn't have to do that, but it's a young team. And especially a guy like Embiid who has been playing basketball for a while, you know, he doesn't go to the ball sometimes, and Simmons does not need to throw these lax bounce passes in those situations. So let's talk about inbound plays really quick and how it killed him in Game 3. Um, Covington's a guy that I don't think is going to... Uh, you're notorious for saying that people aren't smart. Covington does not strike me as the uh, the brightest the brightest crayon in the box, the brightest bulb in the pack. So they're, they're nursing a one-point lead, 98-97 in Game 3, right? An inbound play comes in. And what's the number one thing as a defender you're supposed to do if you're Covington? You're matched up on Al Horford, which is a mismatch. And instead of be- being between your man and, and the uh, the rim, you decide to get between the sideline and your man, which there's no help over the top. There's no help near the rim, which means like as soon as he gets to def- as soon as he gets position on you, you're screwed. Like he's going to be able to go up and it's either going to be a foul or he's going to get a layup, which they got. So then Brett Brown counters out of the uh, the next inbounds play with who who running the out of bounds Ben Simmons your 611 point guard who's your most athletic guy on the court not only is he not the guy who is you know out there to receive the pass he's the guy that's like now effectively taken out of the play so you can inbound to Embiid which is, which in of itself was a stupid play because where's Embiid you know coming to meet the ball at the top of the arc again where's the one place that Joel Embiid should be at the end of a game for you to get him the ball down deep in the post, like the design of the play. And a lot of times Brett has had, you know, decent plays that have come out of timeouts that have come out off of inbound plays. And they've, they've resulted in, you know, back cuts to the rim that have, you know, resulted in easy layups. This was a stupid play call. And like the design of it is just flawed from its inception. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Simmons, Simmons, Simmons should be the guy receiving. It probably should have either been Bellinelli, Ilyasova or Redick inbounding because that gives you the, the playoff of that guy getting the ball in, Simmons being able to read the court, get it to one of the other shooters, or giving it as, as a handoff back. Or if Embiid's down low, it gives him the option to dump it in, in low for what might be an inefficient play, but like ultimately like putting the ball in your best player's hand at the end of the game. And I instead, guarantee like, you the play the, the, was meant to go to go to Embiid, who, who immediately passes back to Simmons, who drives and then kicks out to a, a guy curling off a pick. I guarantee you that's no what it's supposed There's to no be. time with... It, there's five minutes, five and a half seconds. Like I'm looking at the play right now. That's plenty of time. So, That's plenty so of time let's say, play. let's say that you're right, and the idea is to get um, Joel. He the inbounds ball. it to Embiid, and Embiid gives it he right does. back to him. And now Ben Simmons is kind of Ben was still out of bounds. It looked like the play was supposed to be Embiid gets it, pivots, and either makes the read out to Ilyasova on the left, Redick on the right wing, or Bellinelli gets a cut away from his defender, and none of those things happen. 
And by um, the way, all those things you just and and this is another to my point earlier about momentum always going away from the basket. Embiid in that situation, although he was barely coming to the ball, he was you had him moving away from the basket. On yep. the Reddick pass, you had him. Um, I forget who he was passing it to. That horrible Reddick turnover. Was it Simmons? It was to Simmons. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was Embiid. Embiid was at the free throw line, and then Simmons was curling like, it, to make a to make ex- a baseline cut like behind him. Stop but there. He stop never there. came back. Yeah. yeah, it's curling away from the basket, right? No, he was curling towards. Mm, he was. No, he, he wasn't. Was, yes, yes, he was. He definitely was. That's why the ball hit him in the back because he wasn't. Um, uh, he wasn't rotating away like he. I don't know how to explain this. We're not looking at the play together, but Embiid is definitely stationed at the free throw line. Simmons goes to run around him from near side to far side with, I think the idea that he was going to either cut towards the the hoop or come back around to the left flank uh, to, to like the, the left side of the court. I know that for a fact that was not an away from the ball. Okay. Well, like an away from the, away from the hoop rotation. I think the idea though, the, maybe to your point, maybe what you're thinking is, the idea conceptually might have been, or the way that Reddick threw the pass, was that Simmons was supposed to fake a cut towards the rim and then bounce back out away from the, the rim. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's what you meant, but that that's what it looked like Reddick thought was going to happen, and it didn't. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, all right. Maybe, so maybe I'm misremembering that specific play, but definitely the one, the inbound from uh Simmons it was intercepted you have you there's just constant movement away from the basket in situations where you you need to have momentum I know it sounds like a simple thing but when the Celtics are all over and you catch the ball going away you're very rarely in a position to succeed and you're constantly dumping the ball backwards to find a better shot rather than forwards which I get is fine if you want to embrace and I'm all for embracing the three but again, if you want to compare it to a team that shot a lot of threes, like Villanova that did it well, and I get it's a different sport, and or the Warriors, but I watch a hell of a lot less Warriors than I did Villanova, there's a way to shoot threes without gaining the paint and kicking it behind you, or without having guys coming off coming off these, these picks at the top of the elbows. There's a lot of ways to get threes. There's motion. There's creating mismatches. There's guys cutting across the baseline and, and finding finding themselves wide open in the corner and, and moving the ball around the perimeter and forcing a bunch of switches and, and one guy staying open or someone gaining the paint and coming through sideways and kicking it out to a corner. Like, it's not – you don't the – only, the only way to shoot threes in the NBA isn't just to just step in the paint and then put a guy on a pick and kick it out backwards. And it feels like at times that's all the Sixers want to do, and it's not working against the Celtics. And that it's, – it's borderline inexcusable the way Brown has kind of failed to see that. But if, 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 you know, McConnell is able to just open things up, I – I don't know. I honestly think there's actually a shot in the series because all of those Stevens things being said, gonna... they were in position to win each of the last two games. Yeah. If look, if you have Stevens if Brad's, to adjust. I mean, if, if, if anybody Stevens... honestly thinks that they're going to be able to get the same looks with TJ, I mean, look, they're not. We've we've seen that in in game two when TJ got in, three when he got in and was pulled, and now in this game, he is causing a matchup nightmare. He's shutting Rozier out of the game, which is good. I mean, it, then you're relying on small forwards, and and you know, I still think Boston has an advantage there. Whatever, fine. If you're forcing if, Brad if you, Stevens to game plan for TJ McConnell, you've won that. You know how Embiid was pointing at his head with Morris today, and Morris going three yeah. zero, and Embiid just pointing his head. If you if you're if they have to take any mental capital and factor in for TJ McConnell, that's a good thing because now now that's opening up something else. 
If you have to in focus theory, on, should, okay, we're not going to let McConnell get into the paint and get those easy buckets, you're right. You're going to pull someone over at the and put him on his ass, but it's going to free somebody else up. That's exactly right. It should free up somebody at the arc, but again, like that's where we come back to what I think we led with, which is these guys who were such crucial parts of the streak, that being Bellinelli, Ilyasova, and to some extent Covington, they've got to be able to hit their, their shots. Now, look, if you're able to go into Boston and, and sneak out of there with a win, which I, I'm not convinced you can do, but let's just say you can, and you bring and this thing back two for point game. favorites right now. Yeah, I don't care. They've been a favorite in every game. Um, if if you're able to go in and steal one from Boston in game five, and you can bring it back here for game six, and you can really you know use the energy of the home court and force a game seven, then fine. Like it's it's hard because so many people bought into the hype of like what this team theoretically could have been. All the national pundits said that they should win the East, and it felt like that was kind of rushing rushing ahead a, a little bit, a lot of it. Um, but, like, ultimately, if, if you're able to, to get a few games, a few wins off of this series with the awful way you started it, with some of the bad coaching that came up, with some of the boneheaded plays by young players, then fine. Like, if you're able to kind of make this thing respectable down, down the stretch, then it's fine. Like, to, it, it sucks because you essentially beat yourself in game two and three, and now you should be up 3-1 with a date, you know, with LeBron coming up and the ability to play Markel Fultz in the Eastern Conference Finals because it's going to be a, you know, defensive, uh, defense is going to stay home that series. But no, like instead, and this is, I think, one thing I want to talk about really quick, you know, before we wrap or whatever we do, it, it's been a common theme that Ben Simmons' development is more important than winning games in this series. Brett kind of talked about it after game two. He talked about it again after game three. That getting Ben back in the game, I think was what was it? Game two was the one where TJ came in, um, they got the lead, and then they blew it as soon as Ben came back in. And he said that you know getting Do you getting refer the to young all players guys by their first name. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. Um, but like getting the getting him minutes, getting him important reps in the playoffs is crucial to his development going forward. Which kind of implied that winning the game wasn't as important as getting you know Ben critical playoff reps. Well, if you're fine to do that with one rookie who, by the way, has a disgustingly awful plus minus or at least did through three games in the series, how the hell can you rationalize having Markel Fultz off the court the entirety of these playoffs? I mean, with the exception of of some garbage minutes early in the Miami series, like I know that the kid hasn't been able to shoot jump shots. I know that he's been a mess all season, but you're telling me that at certain points in this series, when the game is clearly out of reach... There's nothing valuable about putting Markel Fultz in. If you're not going to play him, then don't let him suit up. Put him next to Furkan Korkmaz in a suit and take all question out of it. Like, that's the one thing. If I have to go to, like, to bat with one thing that I think Brett has screwed up in this series, it's that. Markel Fultz isn't going to win you this series. He's certainly not going to lose it for you. If nothing else, he could have given you some energy minutes. And again, he is long. He has a wide wingspan. And in a series where you are getting beat off the dribble, uh, there's no reason that he can't potentially go in there. And if you give him the assignment of going in and making somebody's life a living hell, and he's got six fouls to play with, then fine. Like, that's something that could have disrupted the play uh, and could have disrupted guys like Jalen Brown. And instead, you know, you kept rolling out these stupid matchups through the first couple of games where you're putting, like, Bellinelli and uh, J.J. Redick on Jason Tatum, which you're never going to win. Fultz at least has a fighting chance of keeping up with him, but... Well, you know, yeah, and, we, and never we don't, mind we don't care there's about a, that. There's a clear athleticism gap between the two teams, and Fultz is, in a way, 
in a way, maybe your most athletic player. I mean, Simmons is a freak, and B, they're they're freaks in their in their own right. And and you know maybe that's not the the best way to put it. But Fultz is the one guy who can, you know, athletically beat a guy off the dribble. Now, I it's possible he is just so far gone as a player right now, and in the limited playoff action we've seen, it seemed like the moment was just too big for him right now, which is a obviously a whole other story. Then why so, is he suiting up? I no, I get that. That but you know, it might be too much of an embarrassment to not, you know, he whoever's taking his place isn't going to be in the rotation anyway, so what's it matter? You know, he, he's still your more able body. I don't know why he's suiting up. But the point that's is what I'm saying like I think the I'm agreeing are, with I think you. the optics are almost worse to some extent. Well, maybe he's sitting but, there on the that he's sitting there on the end of the bench, Kyle. Like what I'm saying is Okay, in, does, okay in, fine. I'm not going to argue game with you th- on that. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not looking to argue. I'm just saying like Game two or three, when it's clearly out of reach, like you've you've blown it. Yeah, but then it's in ba- then then you're putting him in like he's a walk on, and it's weird, you know. Then it's just weird. He's like you're in the bench I guy. I, th- then- I think getting playoff minutes. If mm. if the goal here is to develop your young talent, giving him you know mm. some playoff minutes, regardless of that game in Boston, is- putting him in there after Tatum had a big game and it's a blowout and it's garbage time. It- that's not getting him playoff experience. That that's you know that that's the equivalent of putting a walk off in at the end of the game to say that they stood on the court. That's not real playoff experience. And all that you don't want to talk about serve to embarrass a guy. You put him in while Tatum is walking off to a hero's welcome. I mean that's that's even worse. But to your point, you know for a, for a team that has lacked any sort of creativity on offense, at the very least sprinkle a little bit of faults in somewhere in Boston early in the series, earlier in the game, when it was still within reach, just to see if he could do what T.J. McConnell did for you tonight. I know he's going to make some some bad turnovers, and you he, he's got a very short leash. But he's also good enough to come in and just say, hey, Markel, just go play basketball. Get in the lane, try and make a shot, or you know, or kick it out. Like Just make something happen. Yep. And if nothing else, that just creates a different dynamic and maybe opens something up. So I, you know, it's tough though because all the games were other than game one were kind of close. So I get why you wouldn't want to put him in because he's he has looked like a genuine liability. So that might be the thinking there. But you know, I don't think it could have hurt at this point. You go to McConnell, but if you're down, if you're down ten, and you know McConnell's not cutting it in Game Five, and the same bullshit is happening with a very stagnant offense. Then I, I I don't see the harm in putting him in and see if he can go out and get you a little bit of instant offense or just change the pace and and you know just change the dynamic on the floor. You know, if then I were you really betting, have nothing to lose. But if, if it's I were close, a betting you can't man, do it. I would assume that that Brad Stevens is going to figure out a way to kind of negate some of the the grit play that TJ's had. And I think that at some point in the series, it, you're going to look at this and say, if they had had faults or if they had if they had been willing to play him, maybe it it throws the game on its head a little bit. I mean, if like, they had I, had faults, I mean, I'm not. Even I saying, get what you're saying, yeah, but, but if they had yeah. faults like the proper faults, we would be talking about the series would be over. Yeah, I honestly, mean, he, like he's, I think he's the if we had missing. if we had the faults that we thought we were drafting, the series would be over by now. Like it 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 would have ended tonight. But instead, you know, we're we're faced with the reality of, you know, the the Fultz and Tatum trade looking worse every day. Every time that Jason Tatum comes out and manages to dance between Ben Simmons and Robert Covington or blows by Dario. I mean, that that is is a matchup I hated seeing multiple times tonight. Um, you know, it, it just looks worse and worse. And, and look, you know, it would be short sighted to say that it was a mistake 
and that there's no chance that Fultz ever, you know, becomes the player that we thought he was going to become. But, but right now, like, again, optics are important in this situation. You know, you're watching Tatum be a 20-point-per-game scorer or so. You're watching him be able to stretch the defense. You're able to see him beat guys off the dribble. And I have to say, I screwed this up so badly because if you remember back to, you know, around draft time last year, we had, uh, what was his name, Wasserman on from Bleacher Report, like, breaking down these guys. And the the one guy that, that I did not want on this team, other than Jackson, who I hated, was Tatum because I said, like, I got all the wrong feels about him. He felt exactly like you know, the Evan Turners and the Jaleel Okafors being the most NBA ready, which means highest floor, lowest ceiling. And that's not the kind of guy that I want on this team. Well, I'm totally wrong because he expanded his uh, his range a ton and he is much more athletic than I thought he ever looked in college. Agreed. So, Agreed. you know, that I think is, is part of what sucks as well is, you know, hats off to that guy because, you know, in, in one sense, Knowing that Fultz had tried to rework his shot and eliminate the hitch and speed up the release was something that, like, typically if it had worked out, we would have been commanding the kid on, you know, continuing to hone his craft. Jason Tatum's probably done more to elevate his game and improve off of his uh, his college standing than any other guy not named Donovan Mitchell. So um, it, it's it's been something to see, and it, and it sucks because but it's something the, that we are going to see for the next, you know, 10 years. But the dynamic... The- the dynamic didn't really change. He he still does have, I don't want to say the lowest ceiling, but he is still way closer to his ceiling than, than Fultz is, than whatever Josh Jackson is up to, than whatever um, the Aaron Fox is up to, right? Yeah, I, th- I think he's he's going to be a much better pro than he Josh Jackson. He might be. He might be, but he is... He's got a higher floor than the, the guys that you just mentioned. Forget about it. Did you say Mitchell? Mitchell was like the only guy that I... I think has a higher ceiling right now Fultz sure. Fultz like it's it's impossible to say what Fultz's ceiling is because if he were a guy that that were like even similar to what we thought we were getting then I would like it would be a stupid point on my part but like because he's down to like whatever shell of himself he is currently it's almost impossible to say that that his ceiling right now is the same ceiling that we thought it was coming out of college well, that might have readjusted I, uh, if, yeah. if 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 our I, goal honestly, like I honestly think but I honestly think it, it really hasn't changed that much. You have to remember he's 19, and there was an injury. Like, who knows? Yeah, I, I agree. The The chance of him actually hitting it has shrunk. But, the yes, Tatum has been better than expected and more definitely more athletic than anybody thought he would be. But you're seeing him closer to fully develop. Like, you're probably – he's 10% off, 15% off where he'll be at the – peak of his career whereas a guy like you know obviously Fultz is at zero percent right now but I still think the ceiling the skill set that Fultz possesses is much better for this league if he if he remembers how to shoot you know again huge if if he remembers how to shoot <laughs> no I know but if he remembers how to shoot yeah. his we've seen what he could do off the dribble he, he's crazy athletic and he's just you know he's hardened-esque. Like he's he's exactly what this team. Yeah, needs. he's got a. It's just an a matter of can they skill set. Can they get his head back on straight? Right. So I'm Let not ready you, to. I, I'm I, still not ready to write that pick off because yeah, we we look at it now. Tatum's great. Tatum all along came in as the guy who was most NBA ready, and is he better than he was supposed to be? Yeah, absolutely. But that he it's still the dynamic is still the same. We've just taken things out to the extreme. Like, like Tatum is way better than we thought. Fultz is obviously way worse than we thought. But. That doesn't mean those things aren't going to still go in the planned directions. And five years from now, we could look back after two all-star appearances from Fultz and Tatum pretty much being the same player then as he is now. 
um, and say, okay, well, no, uh, Fultz was was actually better. I mean, this happens all the time in the NBA. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. even going to mention, I'm not even going to mention Kyle Lowry, but it took him six years to become good. You know, yeah, I mean, but I. But Some remember, guy, when Kyle Lowry was drafted, he, 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 first of all, wasn't the number one overall pick. Two, sure. we didn't know what to expect him, of him as a pro because he was like the third option on that Nova team. Like people thought that, you know, what was it? Randy Foy and Alan Ray were going to, you know, they, they were more established players. We knew that Lowry was a much more athletic player. We knew he was more explosive. We knew that like he maybe had a higher ceiling, but he also had a much lower floor. So like, right. and that's what we saying. know. And that's what we, but, honestly, that's what we know about faults. And, and you want to talk about someone who didn't have a shot coming out of college was, was someone like Lowry. Now he's turned into a 40% three point shooter. Fultz already has the shot and he just lost it. So, I mean, I'm not trying to compare the two in a, in a weird way. It's, you know, one of those two guys could have been on the team this year and it wound up being Fultz. They kind of play a similar sort of role on a team. Uh, you know, a, a combo guard who can ostensibly shoot threes, obviously faults that never happened, but, um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing to compare. And I, I, th- I don't know if you saw the thing I wrote last week, but you know, what if they had just stayed at three, they did wind up everything. working out Tatum. Yep. It was reported yep. and had made the free agent move for Lowry. Like I think that's a real, that's a very realistic probably probability, probably the most likely plan B scenario. What happens if they did that? They, if they had Lowry and Tatum, they'd be legit. Uh, they'd probably be the odds, like by far, the favorites to make it. Because not, well, I mean, you'd to make be, it out of the East, you'd just be playing the Cavs in the in the Pretty finals. Close. Yeah, I mean, you mean the you wouldn't the have Reddit in the final. No, yeah. but I mean, you'd have like, yeah, yeah. The Cavs in the conference. Okay, final. so so let's play the hypothetical game because I think this will be this will be good for Twitter conversation or maybe for iTunes review uh, conversation. So I, I want to lay out three possibilities right and i want people to kind of pick what they think the best team would be option one it's the team is currently constructed nothing changes this is this is the world we live in this is what you get to live with going forward option two is what kyle just said which is the sixers stay at three they draft jason tatum they sign kyle lowry that's your team we assume that that likely means that J.J. Redick is not on the team. So Lowry is a swap for uh, for Redick, and Tatum is a swap for Fultz. We can still probably assume that Ursan Ilyasova and or Marco Bellinelli are signed. So I, like outside, of, and you make a, a jaw trade. So nothing really, all that much will change. It's essentially just Fultz swapped for Tatum and um, Lowry swapped for Redick. Or option three. And this is something that I brought up in Slack and I thought about writing a post about. I haven't done it. Maybe I will. Um, Let's assume that the Boston trade never happens. And let's assume that the Danny Ainge, you know, uh, rumor that, you know, I I don't trust anything he says. But let's let's just imagine that the trade never goes down. Boston drafts Jason Tatum number one overall. Magic Johnson realizes that Markel Fultz is a better prospect going forward than Lonzo Ball. He, they draft Fultz at number two, and you're sitting there as the Sixers at number three. The The most likely options that you had at number three, the ones that all of the experts said that they should have considered, were Josh Jackson, maybe Jonathan Isaac, and, uh, and Lonzo Ball. Would this Sixers team, as currently constructed, be better off with Lonzo Ball than they would with Markel Fultz now and going forward, or with Josh Jackson or Jonathan Isaac. Would you rather take a shot on one of those three guys who prove that they can at least maybe do something in the league right now 
they're they're giving you more than Markel Fultz is now. Well, and I'm not so sh- I'm I'm not sure. Like I, I really don't know. I don't I mean, like Lonzo that Ball option. Would be exciting. I think I think there's just a lot of overlap with Ben Simmons, and I think the dynamic that that whole sideshow brings would is just not good. It's it's just not going to end well. Um, and so that's that's kind of like I don't like that third option at all. So like when people are still so angry and incensed and they hate the fact that the Sixers made the trade that they made to go up for Fultz. I often offered that that third scenario, like that was your most likely option. Josh Jackson wouldn't have worked well on this team, although they wouldn't have really relied on him much at all. Jonathan Isaac, you know, same kind of deal. It would have been a developmental year for him. Lonzo Ball like changes the entire dynamic of this team, but I don't know if it's for the better. Plus you have to add his dad into this mix. Yeah, but that, no, that really I, was I, your most likely, uh, you know, hypothetical, even more I'm, so than maybe what yours was. I'm not one. Of, well, yeah, and, but I'm not one of those people who I don't hate to trade. I mean, I think it was still the right decision. It, it's easy to bang on him in hindsight. And I've written a post that I think called, said Brian Colangelo is an idiot at some point last year. So I'm, I'm not like his staunch defender here. But everyone, including Bill Simmons, by the way, before the draft, all thought faults was the number one draft. He was the consensus number one, and it was either him or there was a small case to be made for Lonzo Ball. But faults was 70-30, at least 60-40, probably 70-30, considered to be the uh, the overall number one pick. And the only thing that concerns me is that it seems no one had this inkling about what is clearly an immature psyche. Now, the Sixers will tell you he's a great kid and he's trying hard and they, and there's no hard feelings and all of this. And I, I believe them in that. You know, and he, it sounds like he's a little bit young and occasionally a little bit of a knucklehead. But the fact that, you know, he's got what appears to be some level of Steve Nebraska disease, that doesn't come through throughout the whole draft process. And in fact, everything you heard about him is, oh, no, he's a good kid. He's a quiet kid. He works hard. He, um, you know, he's, he's, you know, just he's NBA ready. He's, he's he's all about the game, all that stuff. Like the fact that no one like picked up on the fact that he really wasn't ready mentally for the NBA. That's a little bit concerning about the league as a whole. And Danny Ainge may have been the only one who got an inkling of that. Um, but I, I can't. You can't really bang on Colangelo for not for for making the trade. I think we we all applauded it. No one second guessed it then, or few people second guessed it then. And I don't know why you should second guess it now. He was he's absolutely the position and the player that you need for this team. And no one could have predicted what happened this year. And if he comes Let's, back and bounces back and is is even just reliable and even lives up to seventy five percent of the billing billing, it will be a home run because he'll be in a in a great role this team needs. And oh, by the way, the one thing we haven't talked about for going forward is. Uh, Anyone still want to make the argument against LeBron James? Do you want to try? Let's save that. We're going to save that for uh, okay. for Wednesday. Because um, you know they win the championship next year if he's on the team. Right? Here's some here's something to hype the people up about. I I referred to the uh, 2010 Flyers team coming back from an 03 deficit to beat Boston um, eight years ago exactly today. The Flyers were down 0-3 at home, facing elimination against the Boston Bruins, and they won Game 4 in Philly and started their historic comeback. Eight years to the date. Could it happen? Today? Will it happen? Exactly today. Wow. Yeah. Well, wait. How about did that, that series go every other day? Because if so, then each game would also match up uh, with, with the series. 
I don't know. Just go. Just go with me on the historical precedent. Let's just let's love. No, I am. Love the moment. Yeah, I don't know. It's possible each of the each of the remaining games in the series will add up. Yeah, I don't look. I don't think this is a is a huge long shot at all. I look. It's it's a long. It's unlikely. But I don't think this is a stunner sixteen beating a one level of oh my god if they win. I think it's it's a it's a quirk in the uh, space time continuum. But I don't I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. You know that they're they weren't outclassed they were outplayed and coached by Boston, but they weren't outclassed by them. Like you, so there's sometimes you can watch a game and be like, well that team has they're just better, and it's really not the case with the Celtics. Like yeah, the, yeah, they create matchup problems. They're hitting a lot of shots. They have superior. They've had superior coaching, but at no point are you, like you always kind of have this gross taste in your mouth because you're like, God, the Sixers are better than this. We know they're better. We've seen them be way better than this. I know they've struggled against Boston this year, but I, I don't think it's it's that out of the realm of possibility. Winning game All five, right, here in, I, ha- in I find Boston I found your is answer insurmountable, and you come home and so, that building's raucous, and then it is what it is. So to answer your question, no. Um, the series was May 7th was game four, then May 10th, 12th, 14th. So it'll, I think it'll be off by a day or so, maybe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because the next, the next Sixers game will be Wednesday night. That's the 9th. And then okay, it goes, we what? got it. It goes Wednesday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's close. Close enough. Close counts and sh- horseshoes Tired hand legs. grenades. Tired legs and, for the Celtics. Uh, a lot of games. And Sixers Every Celtics. other night. So. Two weeks. Anyway, we'll be back on... Uh, on Wednesday with a, uh, a preview of game five and a recap of whatever else is happening in Philadelphia sports. Don't forget we to might check come out. on Thursday. We might yeah. come on Thursday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Game five. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Or like late Wednesday night. I okay. Good yeah. We'll check, check Twitter and we'll, uh, we'll update. Don't forget to go check out crossed up uh, Philly's podcast with Bob and Anthony on Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon. Depends on when it posts. Uh, Snow the Goalie with uh, me and Anthony on Thursday. Crossing Broad FC and It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia over the weekend. We'll be back Wednesday slash Thursday. Check Twitter and we will keep you posted. Looking forward to Game 5. Sixers are about to make history, ladies and gentlemen. And we will talk to you again soon.